as hell and I wanna get ill So I go to a place where my homeboys chill Fellas out there trying to make that dollar I pulled up in the six foot Alright everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bored as Hell podcast I'm Adam McDonald with Big Shiny Robot And I am Andy Wilson, aka CitizenBot, also a Big Shiny Robot And we're here to talk to you about the, well, I guess there was only really one big movie this week, uh, if you can call it that. Uh, There was The Transporter, which uh, they decided not to screen for us. So you're on your own with that one. I can't say anything good or bad about it. Uh, But they did screen A Walk in the Woods by Robert Redford. And uh, Andy, why don't you go ahead and tell us about that one? A Walk in the Woods is uh, based on the 1998 book by Bill Bryson uh, about him he is a travel journalist and known for uh writing funny uh travel books especially well known in england where he'd lived for a long time uh before coming back to new hampshire uh with his english wife and settling down and then he kind of ends up in a middle age ennui where people are asking him well, what's your next project? What are you going to do next? (laughs) And he doesn't really know. And while out walking around in his neighborhood one day, he notices, hey, the Appalachian Trail kind of cuts right through here. That's interesting. It's 2,200 miles long. Uh, I could go down to Georgia and hike it. I've never really done a book about America and traveling through America. So why don't I hike this? Well, then his long-suffering wife uh played here by emma thompson is like here's why you're not gonna do that there's bear attacks there's murders <laughs> uh, all kinds of horrible horrible things like basically he's going to die she's saying yeah <laughs> exactly and and let's be clear the appalachian trail is a very tough hike and thousands of people attempt to do the whole thing every year and uh less than 10 percent of them ever make it and um, most of them are like in their 20s so they're they're in much better shape than any of us are <laughs> yeah and, and uh also a much better shape than uh robert redford and nick nolte in this case but oh poor nick nolte, <laughs> poor nick nolte. Uh, but he says well you know have you ever seen the statistics on how many people try to write a book this is something i can do i've got gumption i'm gonna go i'm gonna do it i have to do this And so he tries to recruit all of his friends, and the only person who will come along with him is a a sort of frenemy uh, uh, named Katz, uh, played by Nick Nolte. And his wife's like, you two don't really get along. Didn't he almost kill you in Europe? (laughs) And he's like, well, kind of, but uh, it it turned out bearable. So um, Katz really wants to go with him on this trip, and so they... They go and uh, off they start hiking from Georgia at the beginning of the hiking season. And wackiness ensues along the trail. Uh, They meet up with a very, very chipper Kristen Schaal who tells them how fat they are and how they're doing all (laughs) of their hiking wrong. And uh, she sits in her tent all night long singing Daft Punk's Get Lucky. Yes, Uh, and... uh, (laughs) Uh, so they have to ditch her real quick, um, but then even after after they've left her, uh, there's other hikers on the trail who are like, oh yeah, she told us about you guys. So uh, their reputation is preceding them. Uh, 
a lot of hardship along the way and um but it's mostly about the journey not the destination which this is really really beautiful country that they're hiking through and that is the best part of this movie is you get these gorgeous vistas in some of the most beautiful places in america uh and for that reason alone that's really the only reason to go and check this out uh what i like to call nature porn Um, (laughs) and uh, other than that uh, you know robert redford is still just as charismatic as ever um Nick Nolte is crazy. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't... I mean, he he's kind of the originator of the mismatched buddy cop movie with 48 Hours. And yep. I think why they put him in here. It's like, hey, let's put this odd couple together. And it, it kind of works, but it kind of doesn't. And uh, the, the real problem that I have with this, though, is Robert Redford is 79 years old uh nick nolte is 74 the real actual bill bryson uh, he's in his 60s and when a walk in the woods came out he was in his 40s yeah this was (laughs) this was something that he attempted as an actual midlife crisis not a three-quarter life crisis Um, (laughs) taking off your bucket list kind of thing so yeah it, it made it a little bit more unbelievable, and it, I don't know, it strained at, at the credulity of the, I just had a really hard time believing any of this, that these guys could make it more than, you know, a couple of days on, out on this trail. Um, it, it works in one sense, and in another sense, it really doesn't. Where it really falls off the rails when they get off the trail and they go into some of these towns to resupply and it just gets dumb and it gets boring and if you want to hear Nick Nolte talk like a dude bro frat boy about trying to pick up chicks then I guess this is for you but it just was really gross distasteful (laughs) Um, and uh yeah there there was just nothing that that was appealing during that time so robert redford good Kristen shaw good and the nature stuff good everything else kind of bad um so i think this was a very middle yeah um poor, poor nick nolte i mean time has not been kind to that man i mean when I heard, because he, originally when he calls and talks to Robert Redford's character, Bill Bryson, on the phone, I thought maybe he was sick or something. He's like, oh, yeah, I want to go on this hike so I'll feel better. No, that's just that's just Dick Nolte now. <laughs> He's a uh, yeah, old curmudgeon slash horny frat boy kind of thing for this movie, I guess. Uh, it's worth noting, actually, that Robert Redford has owned the rights to this movie for well over a decade. Um, yeah. He originally wanted to film this with Paul Newman. Uh, back in 2004, which I know it's only 10, 11 years ago, but at that age, that makes a huge difference. And I think the movie would have been stronger had it been made either one with younger actors and maybe let Redford direct. Yep. Or two, back when, you know, he was younger. Because like you said, you know, the, the original story, Bill Bryson was in his 40s. 
when he attempted this, and I could very easily see a man, I mean, hell, I'm almost in my 40s, you know, a couple years away, I'm there uh, being able to do this, but no, it's a really hard hike. It's it's a really difficult thing to do. Um, so I, people of that age, I just don't, I'm not saying they couldn't, I mean, I'm not, you know, if you're 70 years old and you want to go hike the Appalachian Trail, go ahead. But the way it's set up in here is two people who are out of shape and don't do any kind of outdoorsy stuff. Um, just doesn't make sense. And what I got out, they asked me what I thought about it. And, you know, if, if you really want to sit and watch some old people say dirty things and talk about sex, uh, Golden Girls has been out for over for a couple decades now. <laughs> Go watch three of those because uh, they did it right and they did it funny. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people did, thought this movie was pretty funny. I know the screen I was at, people were laughing uproariously throughout. I just felt the jokes fell really flat. You know, a couple things kind of came through and that got me chuckling, but I was just really bored with it. I mean, like you said, it's, it's a beautifully shot movie. When they're on the trail, uh, it, it's gorgeous. If you love any kind of outdoorsy stuff or hiking, you'll have a blast with that part. Everything else, eh, just it wasn't really worth it. Uh, Emma Thompson, she's she's second build in this movie, and she's in it for all of two minutes as Bill Bryson's wife, and she's what fantastic. Cry. What a yeah. cry. I know. She's fantastic. Uh, everything she's in, in fact, we were talking about some of our favorite movies with her in it, and I brought up a, you know, the, the miniseries Angels in America. She's just divine in that. Literally. Uh, yeah, literally divine. <laughs> but she's wasted. Nick Offerman shows up for two seconds uh, selling camping supplies, and he's great, but he's only in there for two seconds. So, See, Nick Offerman is age-appropriate to play... Bill Bryson. I yes. want to see a Nick Offerman camping in the woods movie. That's a movie I would watch and, and would think was, was interesting. Yeah, he would have actually been a perfect Bill Bryson because he has that kind of exasperated what the hell kind of thing going on, but also he could be smarmy and he can be you know sarcastic and he can be sincere. So that, yeah, that's, that's actually would have been perfect casting for this movie. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm right with you. I'm at a five out of 10. It's not bad. It's not good. It just kind of exists, and uh, I think next year when you ask me what I think I thought about A Walk in the Woods, I'm going to be like, what? Which movie? Because it just, there's nothing there that sinks in and makes you want to remember it. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same place. I'm at a 6 out of 10. Just I think I appreciate the the nature a little bit more, and I, I get what they were trying to do, but it didn't work, and I, I think I liked it. The, the Kristen Shaw cameo. Um, it it made me giggle, even though if although if she'd stuck around anymore, I would have wanted to strangle her. So oh, I I was no, I was I was ready to strangle her the moment she came on camera. So. That, that was a perfect amount of Kristen Shaw for me. So <laughs> okay, yeah. um, now, Andy, you had a chance to see a movie that I didn't. So which one was that again? This is called Learning to Drive. Uh, it is based on a magazine article. Um, and you can tell it the whole time I sat through this movie uh, I said to myself this feels very stretched out like it would have made a really good uh, think piece in a literary magazine somewhere and that's exactly where it came from uh, Patricia Clarkson uh, plays a, uh, a literary critic and college professor um, who ends up that her husband is divorcing her um, because she loves her books more than she loves him. And he's been off having affairs 
and her daughter uh, has decided she's going to take a couple of semesters off and go spend them up in Vermont on a farm to try and find herself. And so she says, well, I'll come up and visit you. And then she figures out, well, my husband was the one who used to drive. So I have no way to get out of the city. And since the train doesn't go to where this farm is, I have to actually learn to drive to be able to get up there. So um, she, uh, she happens to have met a driving instructor uh, played here by um, Ben Kingsley. And he is, uh, he's playing a man named Darwan who is an Indian Sikh, uh, which is, uh, it's a, a very specific religion in, unto itself. You'll mm-hmm. often see them wearing ceremonial turbans and uh, they're, they're not Muslim, but the, of course, this being America, we think everyone with brown skin and a turban is a Muslim. Yeah. <laughs> so there's all sorts of prejudice uh, against him and all sorts of ugliness, uh, which uh, the Sikhs are a very peaceful people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is, uh, and he's also a uh, in political asylum from India um, because his, his parents... Uh, and the rest of his family were involved in uh, anti-government activities. So he can't go home, and he is being uh, matched in an arranged marriage uh, with someone who he's never met. And she shows up in America, and they get married, and that's it. Um, And so all this time, he's trying to teach Patricia Clarkson how to drive, and trying to teach her life lessons. They try to be a bit more deep and meaningful, but really it doesn't come off as anything better than that. Um, Like I said, this could have made a really good short film, I think. Mm -hmm. They could have fit all of this into 30 minutes. Um, If you end up watching this, uh, you can make it into a drinking game, and every time (laughs) Martin talks about how much she loves books and she loves words and she's in love with them. Take a drink and you'll get a pretty good buzz going enough to keep you um, enough to keep you entertained through this movie, which is not really enough to keep you entertained for most of it. Uh, meh, boring, five out of ten. Uh, the only reason to watch this is Ben Kingsley does a great job again putting himself into this role that is very different Mm -hmm. and um he does an excellent job and really makes you believe uh that he he is a Sikh he he understands this he's from this world and uh in that it's successful in everything else it's just it's just kind of meh yeah just even from your description it sounds like just something that I would your your description itself of the movie was just uh no so don't go see that or yeah, don't go see that this week. <laughs> I mean, if you really like coming or like women of a certain age movies and, but there's, there's better than this. You don't have to see this. That's yeah. I just, it's not yeah. horrible, but it's just, it's not. It's, yeah. Uh, you, you said next year, ask you about a walk in the woods and you'll be like, what next week? Ask me about learning to drive. And I'll be like, what? <laughs> Um, yeah, so two 
pretty much mediocre movies this week. Um, so what Andy and I wanted to do for our recommendation was, since Walk in the Woods is based on a true story of, of Bill Bryson walking the Appalachian Trail, um, we decided to talk about uh, one of our favorite movies that is also based on a true story. Uh, <clears throat> I almost wanted to go with Fargo more just to talk about the TV show. <laughs> I, I decided to go one that was a little bit kind of more of a biopic. Um, I went with Milk, which was the uh, yeah, pretty much biopic of Harvey Milk. Uh, it came out a couple years ago, uh, and it kind of chron- and Sean Penn plays the title character and kind of chronicles the rise uh, and eventually murder of uh, Harvey Milk, who was a really really big uh, into gay rights. He was actually the first openly gay person elected to public office in California and only the third in the nation. So aside from the fact that it's an it's an incredible movie, it's really well acted, uh, Dustin Lance Black definitely deserved the Oscar he won for Best Screenplay. Um, I thought it was very timely, especially with what's going on now with uh, the you know, same-sex marriage and Kim Davis you know, being the quote-unquote martyr and everything going on in Kentucky, which I'm not getting it into because this isn't meant to be a political um, sounding board for us or for anyone else. We're just here to have fun and talk about movies. But it's really interesting to look at what's going on now as compared and contrasted to what happened in the 70s when people didn't have rights. In fact, one of the the biggest things that Harvey Milk was fighting against was Proposition 6, which was uh, an issue on California ballot, which the California ballot process, if you live there or if you have lived there, um, anyone can go down and just say, hey, I want this to be a law put it on the books, and then they have X number of days to get enough signatures to get on the ballot. So it's really, really easy for anyone to go down there and try to make a new law, which is both a good and a bad thing. Uh, But there was uh, Proposition 6, which was going to outlaw um, anyone who was lesbian, gay, or bisexual, I mean, transgender, people didn't really discuss back then, um, from being involved in any kind of work with public schools, as well as anyone who would support them. So it was a really, really big piece of legislature trying to write discrimination into California law, and he worked really, really hard to defeat that. What? So. You mean someone used the California proposition uh, method to legislate discrimination <laughs> and put that into the law? That that never happens. This no. Not recently in 2008 or anything. Or like even this year where the guy had the, the kill the gays proposition he was trying to get through. Oh. <laughs> um yeah, again, crazy people. Uh, but, I mean, the movie, it's its a great period piece to look at how things have changed from then till now. Uh, fantastic writing. It's a fantastic acting. Uh, I completely forgot until I watched it recently that Josh Brolin plays Dan White, the man who eventually uh, kills Harvey Milk, uh, and then gets off using the infamous Twinkie defense. Uh, for those who weren't aware of it, at his trial, he claimed temporary insanity because of the preservatives and chemicals that were found in Twinkies, and he got off. So, you know, it's yeah, a travesty of, of justice back then. Um, but if you've not checked it out, which I, I feel a lot of people haven't, it's a great movie. Uh, it's, yeah, it's one of the best probably the last couple of years. And, you know, the fact that it's based on a real man's life and what he did to really improve the quality of people's lives, you know, gay and straight in California... Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Milk is, it deserves all of the praise that it's gotten and more. I think there were certain people who didn't check it out because of um, lingering fears about, oh, well, this is a gay movie or something. Eh, let's just get over that. And, uh, 
go watch it. It's a, a great film about an important person that you probably haven't heard of and why his struggle was so important for so many people. So speaking of real life people and speaking of Robert Redford earlier, uh, I wanted to uh, recommend All the President's Men. Which great movie. Is, uh, this is this is one of my favorite movies, and um, in in college, this is really funny. My freshman year, I had two posters on my wall in my dorm room. I had The Empire Strikes Back and All the President's Men. <laughs> that's Seriously. awesome. So that's the kind of nerd I was, and still am to this day. But All the President's Men is the story of Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Burns played by Robert Redford and uh, Dustin Hoffman and uh, they're trying to chase down the story of what happened with the break-in at the Watergate building and initially this is nothing it's like hey someone broke into the Democratic headquarters in the Watergate yeah so mm -hmm. and it didn't seem like there was any story there uh, but Redford, or not Redford, Bernstein, or uh, sorry, Woodward, uh, smelled something, and it's like there's there's got to be more here, and so there's this great scene where he's just calling people up and down uh, the the White House phone list that he can think of, and getting just you know just blown off by mm -hmm. uh, they're they're not commenting, and they're like saying oh good god this is nothing go away and um they start digging more and more into this and for those who don't know um woodward and bernstein were ended up being helped a great deal uh by an inside source who uh went by the code name of deep throat mm -hmm. and uh which was named after a porn movie <laughs> <laughs> which um Going back to last week when we did our in memoriam for Wes Craven, he worked on. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. We, wow. He didn't specify what he did. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously it wasn't any of the quote unquote on screen talent. Um, but yeah, he he worked on that movie. So yeah, so uh, Deep Throat uh, provided them really critical information. At least kept telling them to keep digging and that there was something there. Uh, there ended up being a lot of intrigue and how they how they had to talk to Deep Throat was like he'd put a a flag in a flower pot out on his balcony window and uh, then Woodward would meet with Deep Throat in uh, in a parking garage in Arlington and mm -hmm. he'd kind of steer them the right way um, and uh, Deep Throat supposedly gave them the, the final piece of the puzzle where he told them, uh, keep digging and follow the money. And uh, that's where that, that term comes from in, uh, where in, in whenever there's a political scandal now, everybody always says follow the money. Well, that, that came out of this, and that was kind of the first time yep. they'd done that. And so they followed the money from... Uh, Nixon's committee to re-elect the president and uh, found out how they paid all of these people. And there they go, and things started uh, winding down. Uh, it's a, it's not only a great story, it's a great movie. It's incredibly well-paced, and it plays out like a mystery where they're trying to uncover all of these things. Um, unfortunately, it's a mystery where we all know the ending. 
And um, my only real criticism of this movie is just when you think it's about to start really getting good and they start publishing all of these breakthrough stories about uh, uncovering everything, what's going on with Nixon, the movie ends and it, it's just like a summary where a teletype comes up and like prints the, the headlines from their next like 12 stories. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, you're taking out the best part. And they're like, well, no. Uh, they left in the struggle, the hard part about them trying to actually uncover the truth and um, what made it so difficult. Uh, oh, and I have to, I almost completely forgot mentioning Jason Robards here. Yep. Uh, editor Ben Bradley. Um, ben Bradley was a larger than life figure himself. And this is also one of Jason Robards' best roles ever. Um, and, you know, there are these great scenes where uh, Woodward uh, turns in these stories and Robards goes through with a red pen and just marks everything out that he can't like 100% back up. And he's like, I can't print this. And it's a great story about journalistic ethics um, that frankly, in today's world, I don't think that there's many places that would, um, that would go to that length. People will print all sorts of innuendo and, and things like that, which is why we have um, three-year-long investigations into Benghazi and, um, you know, so on and so forth that uh, we, there, the lens that we use to uh, search for truth is definitely a bit more opaque these days. So yeah. we'll, we'll say that. And I think, you know, the, just, you know, going back to the journalistic integrity part is, I know one thing that I, I really pride ourselves on is I think pretty much everyone a Big Shining Robot, uh, you know, because we have our own little private communicator that we talk about things and bounce story ideas back and forth. Uh, there's so much stuff out there. And, you know, I think one of the, the prime examples was uh, last year when it was, you know, confirmed, confirmed, confirmed that Brian Cranston was going to be Lex Luthor in the Batman v Superman movie. And everyone was like, oh, we should run this. We should run this. And we're like, no, we can't. We're not running this because it's not confirmed. And anyone doing any sort of digging would have found it went back to one really iffy quote-unquote source close to the movie from one uh, pretty dubious website. But, I mean, it got picked up everywhere. It was on, like, E! News. It was on CNN. I think even CNN picked it up. And then two days later, they're like, oh, yeah, no, it's Jesse Eisenberg. And I know that's honestly a lot different than, you know, Nixon and the Watergate trials and the break-in and everything. Um, But the same idea exists that, you know, I've never had to issue a retraction. Um, and I'm proud of that fact. I think I don't think we ever even have at all on Big Channel Robot that, you know, we said, yes, this is going to happen uh, when it wouldn't because we do fact check enough to where, you know, we may not be the first ones to break a story or talk about something, uh, but you know if we talk about it, it's right. Um, well, and and that's only, more important. Yeah, and not only on top of that, I mean, there's this whole issue with Gamergate and the, the, the tribe of people who thought that Gamergate was about ethics and journalism like i won't even discuss the merits of that but you know there is something to be said about lack of ethics in online journalism and you know people are willing to trade favorable coverage for things and i feel like that does not happen i mean i've never received any sort of gift or anything like that that has made me want to uh 
that has made me want to cover something more favorably. Uh, I've, I have received like advanced review copies of things. Um, and many of those things I've enjoyed, but many of them that I get to see in advance, uh, I do not enjoy. I mean, look, for instance, at these two movies this week. I got in to see those movies for free at advanced screenings. Um, and I'm, I'm still just like, yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, we're not, we're not going to fawn over something just because, uh, somebody sent us a, a gift basket. Yeah, and then there's I've gotten advanced copies of stuff, and actually one of the, the the worst movies I've ever seen, and I gave a horrible review on, was an advanced copy, um, and I almost felt bad carrying it to shreds, but at the same time, it was the honest thing to do because that's what I would have done had I seen it in the theater, had I rented it or bought it. The director actually wrote back to me, um, and he he was a really nice guy, which is, it almost made me feel worse. But I know, <laughs> <laughs> I remember when that happened. <clears throat> it was the honest thing to do. And I, you know, I would never change that. And you know, one thing we see a lot of is uh, film critics, much, much more important film critics than we'll ever be, uh, <laughs> go to uh, press junkets where they get to go, see, you know, get flown out to random places, see the movie, kind of get treated like royalty, and then interview the, the cast and crew. And you know, there's some critics, like ones who wear sweater vests, go to these things, and. Uh, you know, because they're being fawned over because they're getting free shrimp and lobster, uh, do generally review the movies more positive because they're in that positive experience. Um, and then there are other critics, and we're not naming names, but we'll just say that they may or may not be on Geek Show, uh, can still go and be, stay completely objective and give an honest review despite all the cool, fun things being thrown at them. And that's a huge thing because, I mean, it's, it's easy to go somewhere where you're being pampered and kind of bow down to to get a positive review to, to, have, to have that affect your view but it's the true saying of again having that kind of ethics that you realize that yeah what they're trying to do and enjoy it but still be very honest and upfront with what your thoughts are about a movie a book a play whatever you know they're trying to push on you i don't know i i heard jimmy's review of planes fire and rescue and I think he got over pampered at that at, at that <laughs> that that he thought that that movie. No, I'm just kidding. That's just a disagreement between critics. And yeah, I would. I think you know he's obviously a, a, a professional. Um, for an interesting kind of behind the scenes look at this, there's the movie American Sweethearts, uh, where uh, they're they're trying to take all of the press out in the middle of nowhere and uh, get them to see this movie and pamper them so that they'll uh, they'll review this movie more favorably. Uh, I always think that's that's an interesting... I, I mean, that that's not the main plot line of the movie. Uh, it's obviously John Cusack and Julia Roberts and right. uh, them, them getting together in their long-lost love or whatever. Uh, yeah, but um, interesting. Hey, you know, we haven't talked about talking about this, but Talking about film junkets reminds me of a, a funny story about uh, Ike Perlmutter, the the head of Marvel at one of the Marvel MCU movie premieres. He was really upset that the critics were being given two sodas rather than one soda. <laughs> oh, I should clutch my pearls. I uh, know. He was really upset. He's a notorious skin flint. Um, but, you know, a kind of major reorganization happened over at Marvel this week. And a lot of people have been asking, like, what this means. Um, 
so I thought I'd weigh in on this really quickly. Uh, Kevin Feige, uh, who has been the executive producer on all of the Marvel movies and uh, head of Marvel uh, Marvel's movie division, uh, they are moving that division from outside of Marvel's offices in New York to Disney's offices in Burbank. Yep. And he will now report to uh, Disney's people and to Bob Ike, not to Ike Perlmutter, the CEO of Marvel. People are like, why do we care? What does this mean? Um, I think this is huge. Um, and it's really good. So people were freaking out. No, this is a good thing. No, this is definitely a good thing because Ike Perlmutter is the the inside reports that uh, I have heard for many many years. He's an he SOB. Is, <laughs> he is a, he is a hard person to work for. Uh, Marvel has a hard time attracting and keeping top talent, especially in their comics division, because they just won't pay people. And uh, they won't pay them what they're worth for sure. And so people jump ship and go and work for DC to work on less interesting projects, but they're getting paid better. Uh, and um, and they'll go work for Image and they'll go do their own projects and so on and so forth. So it's amazing that Marvel is still able to keep some of their top people. Um, and Marvel's uh, MO has always been to search out very cheap talent and sign them to long contracts. So Chris Evans isn't making near as much money playing Captain America as he would have taking that kind of a deal anyplace else. Uh, and, same for yeah. Mark Ruffalo, same for um, uh, Star-Lord. I mean, uh, Chris Pratt, because of Jurassic World, that guy could probably that guy could probably walk in and demand 10 times what he was paid uh, to be Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, and what's really interesting is uh, well, before they were filming Avengers uh, Age of Ultron, there was a lot of talk that you know they were having, they were renegotiating contracts and you know, uh, it was Robert Downey Jr. was arguing for more money, uh, and he was but to show you what kind of stand-up guy he, he is, he was arguing for more money, not for himself, but for Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth and Jeremy Renner, uh, he understood. You know, the first movie became the, the third highest grossing movie of all time before Jurassic World knocked it out, um, and he knew it wasn't right that he was because you know, RDJ's pulling down fifty-five million a movie, yeah. and these guys were making maybe a couple million. Which, yeah, a couple million to is a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, when how much these movies make and just, I mean, not even counting merchandising and everything else, uh, it's it's chump change. So. Yeah, these guys. This, this, yeah. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> and and Perlmutter, he came out of the toy world, um, and that's what he was doing. Uh, he was doing Marvel's toys before he was put in as CEO, um, and he is also being blamed for a lot of the merchandising problems, uh, where we did not see Black Widow in a lot of toys and did not see her on a lot of backpacks or t-shirts or things like that so um moving all of this over to disney where they get it more and they are willing to write big 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 checks for things that they want so um I I think, four billion for star wars or <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh when when it comes time to make the infinity wars movies those movies are going to get expensive really quickly 
Disney is probably willing to do what needs to be done and what Feige wants to do, uh, then more than Marvel would have been willing to. So I think this is all a good thing. Yeah, and like you mentioned before, with uh, Perlmutter being cheap, uh, you know, all the top talent in Marvel is gone. I mean, uh, Secret Wars, which if you're not reading it, you should be. It's fantastic. Uh, when its run is over and the whole Marvel universe reboots, uh, all the current writers are gone for the most part. I mean, you're not going to see anyone like I think it, like Bendis is leaving. Uh, no, everyone who's been doing stuff uh, is going away, and they have to get new talent, new writers, which can be a good thing because it does let new new blood into the lifeline and you know show you know new stories and you know new talent, but. At the same time, you, when you lose that experience and you lose people who've been doing this for decades of their whole lives, um, you do run the risk of the quality sharply dropping off until this new talent can find their feet and find a voice for these characters. So, uh, yeah, it's, this is a good thing. Everyone's freaking out. Don't, like Andy mentioned, Disney's got a lot deep, deep pockets. They can throw money at whatever they want. Uh, and I think this is going to be a really, really good thing because Kevin Feige will now... Because he's had, you know, creation control over everything, and that's actually why, you know, he came at odds with, you know, someone with Joss Whedon, with Avengers, uh, kind of why Edgar Wright left Ant-Man, is because Kevin Feige has this overarching storyline and view and where he wants this whole thing to go, and even though he's not the one writing the scripts or putting everything together, he is the one who's like, well, you have to include this because this is tied in. So people ask, you know, why was, why was Falcon in Ant-Man? Well, because it ties in really, really big to Ant-Man coming around and being in Civil War and then going from there into the Infinity War. So even though they are individual movies, there is a thread of storyline connecting them all together, and that's what he's in charge of. So, And it looks like they're understanding that even more. Like our, earlier this year, we had uh, a big story. Ava DuVernay is going to direct Black Panther. Oh, wow, perfect. Selma was a great movie. We're going to have uh, a black female director directing our uh, our our movie about the Prince of Wakanda. That is awesome. And then after like a week or two of being on the job, uh, she's just like, no, they don't want to make the same movie that I want to make. And Feige's like, I really respect her. She's a great director, but we have mm-hmm. very specific things that we want to do. And I think that that is Marvel's new MO, um, where they want people to come in. And it's almost more like uh, being a director on a TV show, where um, the executive producer is saying, like, okay, here's the overarching thing, and you're going to do this episode and this episode and this episode. And you definitely get to put your flair on it. But I think that's why, um, you know, some TV talent is doing very well uh, finding themselves uh, directing many Marvel movies. Yeah, and, I mean, I read an article, I think it was on Hollywood Reporter, possibly a couple weeks ago, about the, you know, you mentioned the Marvel MO. It's taking, you know, this, they take a small director, they come in, they make, you know, a $200, a $200 million movie that all of a sudden, boom, blows up and makes, you know, almost a billion dollars, uh, and that sets their career off. You look at, you know, like James Gunn, who really was known, known for doing trauma stuff and Slither, and he made the biggest movie of the year last year. Yeah. Um, so you can guarantee that whatever he wants to do down the road, he can he can take it, and they'll give it to him. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, people, you know, I know the fans of Joss Whedon will probably hate me for this, but, you know, Joss Whedon was more well-known as being a TV director and an excellent writer 
um, he wasn't really well known for his movies. No. You know, not at all. I mean, everyone you know loves and kind of camps on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the original movie. That was about it. But boom, what happens? He goes ahead and makes two of the biggest movies of all time. Um, he can do whatever he wants now. And, yeah. you know, just like it or not, Marvel and Disney helped make that career for him. Well, and that's and that's what he is doing. And he also made a smart decision for both him and for Marvel that, like, hey, we can't keep doing this. This has been great, um, but I got to do my own thing, and you guys have to do your own thing. And having that mutual respect, I think, is incredibly important, especially when we're talking about the creation of art uh, and where you have very specific... Uh, they have very specific needs that they that they want met. And, you know, you can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think the fans are certainly enjoying it, and we all want to see that Infinity War movie. Well, sometimes that means that the most creative stuff can't fit into that box. And that's yeah. unfortunate. I would have loved to have seen an Ava DuVernay Black Panther movie. But I oh, also... Definitely. I also understand that that may not be compatible with what they need to do to get T'Challa where he needs to be before the Infinity War. Yeah, and you know, it's like the Russo brothers are a great example because they made Winter Soldier, which I go back and forth between that and Avengers if it's my favorite Marvel movie. Um, it, it's almost a damn near perfect movie. Yeah. But you know, obviously, he was given very, very specific parameters, like you know. Shield has to become Hydra, and this has to happen here because not only is it going to tie over into Agents of Shield on TV, but this is going to be a big part in the future movies. So the whole time we're talking about this, all I could think of was, um, you know, the the rules for writing a sonnet. You know, a sonnet is one of the most intense, very you know, there's very detailed things you can and cannot do in one, um, and it's one of the hardest things in literature to write. But at the same time. You know, you look at Shakespeare had some of the most beautiful sonnets of all time because even though he was restricted by those rules, you're still free to play around and do what you want in there. And it's like, you know, I mentioned the Russo brothers with Winter Soldier. Yeah, they had to follow certain rules, but they were so free to shoot the way they want, do certain cool action scenes, throw in fun things here, you know, pick what they wanted to be like Falcon and everything else. So, yeah, there are limits to what you can do in a Marvel movie if you're the director, but not only, like we said, will it make your career, you still have a ton of freedom and can do some really, really cool things. Um, you know, I just, or like Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, that movie is, is funny as hell, and it didn't have to be that funny unless James Gunn wanted it to be. I mean, to this day, I still laugh my ass off every time I hear the Jackson Pollock painting joke. So, yeah. <laughs> no, but the Russo brothers are another, I mean, they are the prime example. You know, I mentioned people coming out of TV. You know, they got discovered because they were working on Community, and they wrote and directed that paintball episode in the first uh, in the first season. You know, mm-hmm. that wasn't. Uh, you know, they were nobody before then, but then they and now they're suddenly doing Winter Soldier. So the Marvel skinflint attitude has been both a blessing and a curse. They can't get the top top people, but they're they're able to get sometimes the right people. And the yeah. Russo brothers have done a great job. So. so, well, anyways, I think we've we've gone <laughs> we went off on a tangent there, but I think it was some really important stuff to talk about. Uh, you know, just big moves in kind of the, the movie making world. So, that'll take us to the end for this week. Uh, next week, we've got three new movies to talk about. We've got the the found footage 
M. Night Shyamalan film The Visit, which is like a, looks like Hansel and Gretel retelling. I can't really tell. Something. Uh, the, something yeah. Well, we're all very excited for that one. Uh, the Scorch Trials, which is the sequel to last year's Maze Runner. And then a really cool little uh, rom-com called Sleeping with Other People with Jason Sudeikis and Allison Brie. Uh, premiered at Sundance this year and will be coming out next Friday. And not only did we get a chance to both see the movie, uh, next episode, stick around because Andy got a chance to uh, talk to and interview the director. And she's a sweetheart. So we think you'll enjoy that. So next week, make sure you stick to the end. Yep. All right, everyone. Hail Satan and have a lovely afternoon. Key, he's gonna fly